Hello, everyone. My name is Jessica Morris, and I work at Marie Vitsedek. I am honored to introduce our speaker, Mr. Noam Zion, who is now Emiratus at Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, where since 1978, he has been a senior research fellow and educator. He earned a graduate degree in general philosophy at Columbia University and the Hebrew University while studying Bible and rabbinics at JTSA and the Hartman Beit Midrash. His popular publications and worldwide lecturing have promoted homemade Judaism, empowering families to create their own pluralistic Judaism during home holidays, Pesach, Hanukkah, Shabbat. He is the author of some of the most widely used Haggadahs, and his educational study guides for day school teachers are also widely used throughout the country. His most recent academic research encompasses a trilogy on the intellectual history of philanthropy entitled Jewish Giving in Comparative Perspectives, which we will be discussing today. In 2021, Jewish Publication Society published Sanctified Sex, the 2000-year Jewish debate on marital intimacy. Outstanding moments in his personal biography include growing up as a rabbi's kid in his father's conservative synagogue in Minneapolis, going on a student mission to meet Soviet Jewry in 1968, participating in the Columbia University protest, and making Aliyah during the Yom Kippur War. His Dutch wife, Marcel, the Lamaze teacher, gave him her last name, Zion, and he has five children and 12 grandchildren. Welcome, Mr. Noam Zion, and thank you so much for teaching us this class today. Okay, shalom lachem. Thank you for joining me. You're expected to eat because this is your lunch period, right? So please feel comfortable to do that if that's the right time for you. Um, I'm Noam Zion. You're part of the organization of Uri Zion, so that's a nice connection. Uh, some of us just finished with uh, fasting for Tisha B'Av. Um, and so the next transition is to get ready for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So to deal with tzedakah is certainly an appropriate way to get ready for the month of Elul. Utfila utstaka ma'avirim et roa hagzera. In the research that I did, uh, that the topic we're going to be dealing with is the topic of uh, Paul's, understanding, Paul's understanding of Christian charity and the ways in which it's radically different than the Maimedian and Talmudic tradition of giving tzedakah. So while I just came back from, uh, from a seminar uh, at the Hebrew University in which they have almost a thousand people doing Jewish studies and doing many presentations, and I went to a wonderful session about Yitz Greenberg, which was a You're muted. You got muted by accident. Okay, unmute. That's better. So I just came back from a session in which Yitz Greenberg, now 90, uh, it was a tribute to him about his notions of religious diet, interreligious dialogue. And one of the things he emphasized is interreligious dialogue is not about agreement. It's about loving rebuke and the ability to listen and to learn from others, but it's not about coming to a common point of view. And in that spirit, I'm going to be talking about the differences, I think the radical differences between Paul, which is a core Christian understanding, and the Mimedean one. When I did my work on this comparative study of philanthropy, I, of course, I did it in English, and I had to retranslate every single Jewish text I had 
because all the Jewish texts that had been translated into English took the word tzedakah and they translated into the word chair into the word charity. But that's exactly the mistake. Of course, tzedakah and charity are not alike. They're radically different, and I'm going to try to show how there's a deep narrative, religious narratives, powerful ethical worldviews that are implicit in the two different terms in tzedakah and in charity. In fact, there's many, many different narratives of tzedakah, and my book is a comparison of many different ones. I'm going to concentrate only on Rambam. And even in Christianity, of course, there's multiple ones, but Paul is really the core understanding, and that's what I'm going to deal with. Now, you probably, I just found out that Uri Tzion has a status as a 501, what's it, 501C, right? Which, and what's the definition of it? It means that you're a charitable institution, Uri Tzion. In fact, I don't think that you would like being called a charitable institution. After all, your real concerns are about justice, not about charity. Justice and charity could not be farther apart, but for the sake of the, uh, the tax deduction, I understand why we try to stick ourselves under the notion of charity, but it's really not about charity at all. And that's what I'm going to try to emphasize. The intellectual uh, paradigm that I'm using for the analysis of Paul and Rambam is, the, uh, is actually from a person who was a, a, a member of the staff in Camp Ramah when I went to camp. His name is Bob Cover. He died very young, but before that, he was a professor at Yale and produced a seminal book uh, article called Narrative and Nomos, in which he argued about American law, but applies to, uh, to Jewish law as well, that you cannot understand a law unless you understand the narrative that the law already implicitly holds. And in this case, it's a narrative about giving and about givers and recipients about where did your money come from and how did this other person become poor and a narrative about what's your relationship between yourself and that other person and because we're dealing with theological texts it also involves a narrative about god not a set of dogmas about god but a narrative about what god how god interacts with the world and with human beings for the Jews, Exodus is the most important narrative of who God is as a redeemer of an enslaved people, bringing them freedom and giving them law and entering a constitution, a covenant, a two-way covenant with them. For Paul, as we'll see, the core narrative is the narrative of a God who sacrificed his own son out of an act of love. And that son, Jesus, sacrificing himself for people who are sinners. And that's the ultimate act of charity, because the word charity is from the Latin term caritas. It's a translation of the Greek word agape, which means love. And therefore, there's no meaning to giving charitably unless it's a way of conveying love. But love in different traditions is not the same. The Christian love at the core here is the altruistic love, which is a giving of grace, which is a loving somebody who doesn't deserve it and who feels redeemed by that relationship of love. So every time a Christian gives charity, if he's living up to the meaning of that term, then he's going to ask himself, how am I expressing love? And then the recipient has to ask himself, what am I experiencing when I'm being given given help and aid that I need? How do I relate to the giver? Do I love the giver? Do I, do I see the giver as a person who's, uh, that I owe thanks to? In the same way, when we have a tzedakah notion 
and you give tzedakah to somebody in need, how is that tzedakah, is the recipient and the giver, how do they think about themselves? How ought they to think about themselves? Now, Paul and Rambam are not just theoreticians of giving, and Maimonides, of course, is also a legislator of giving, but both of them were, played a central role in collecting money. They were great, they were great fundraisers. Paul is described in the New Testament as collecting money from diaspora Christians and Jewish Christians and bringing the money to the Jewish Christian community in the 50s and 60s of the first, of the first century, even, even before the Gospels were written whatsoever. And at the same time, Maimonides, who arrived from Morocco, had, one of the ways that he came, became not only the most important halachic not only the most important halachic authority, but also became the, uh, but also became the head of the community. And he did it because exactly at that period, that was the period of the Crusades, there were many Jews who were taken as hostages. Also, holy books like the Ketar Arom Tsova, the most ancient and, and, uh, and correct version of the Bible we have, was also taken into hostage. And Maimonides raised the money in order to, in order to do Pidyon Shvuim and to bring them back. So these, these two thinkers are thinkers who are activists, but they also have a narrative of giving. And, and when you read what they write, you can see that they're making a sermonic appeal to people to give based on their appeal. And the appeal has an element of what's the ideal ethics, is the ideal character that we want to develop, a person of justice or a person of love, is it what's the ideal narrative theology, is it the God of Exodus or the God of the crucifixion, what's the ideal anthropology, right? Do we think of human beings as being having free will or being burdened by original sin? Do we see people as in a situation of shame or a situation of pride? Ethics, anthropology, and theology are all integrated in these two terms, charity and tzedakah. So if you'll think for a moment, and here I'm, we're going to start sharing the texts, and I, uh, I think they sent out the texts, but I reworked them, and so I'll send them out again. Okay, let's make this big enough so everybody can see it. View, zoom. Okay. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty big. Okay, great. Okay, so here's our topic. Paul's charity versus Maimonides' tzedakah. On one side, the ideal of the selfless, loving giver. On the other side, the dutiful and respectful donor. I'll do a little unpacking already. The key element for Paul is that all giving that's true giving, that's giving out of love, has to be altruistic. It ha cannot have an element of self-interest in it or any expectation of, a, of an earthly reward. It has to be an act of loving. It's an act of giving. It's not the result of obeying a commandment. On the other hand, for Maimonides, it's clear that tzedakah is a mitzvah. In fact, if we had more time, we would see that he says the community should force people who don't give enough money. If they don't give the money that's set by the community, the community should go and take the money from them. In fact, the term for the people who collect tzedakah as tax collectors, it's a tax, are gabaim. So those people standing next to the Torah 
for us today, they're probably just checking how the Torah reader is doing, what mistakes they make, making sure the next person who comes up. But the real Gabai is the one who's keeping track of how much contributions each Ole is giving. And the larger notion of Gabai, also in modern Hebrew, is a tax collector who has the power to enforce. Of course, we're happy to have voluntary gifts. But if you don't give them voluntarily, then the community has the power to force you to do that, certainly in the rabbinic and in the Maimedean understanding of that donor. So we're gonna, I made a long list of different paths to giving. Of course, Paul and Maimonides, they share the notion that we should give to the poor, that it's a central, it's not just a mitzvah, it's, the, it's a very, very central religious um, ideal, and for Maimonides, a central imperative. He says he's never heard of any community in, in, in the Jewish people that doesn't have a kupatz taka with its gabaim who are setting the taxes, collecting the money, and distributing it to the poor. These are very central notions. Both Christians and the Jews from the earliest classical period were radically alike, not different, but alike in that notion that we have to give to the poor. They were... Enter, they, they were in a world, the Greco-Roman world, that in which there was no notion of an obligation to give to the poor at all. There were times in which kings would give, for example, bread and circuses in Rome to everybody who's a citizen. There were times in which they might give money to a widow, to a war widow. They gave lots of gifts to the community, for example, fountains and temples and celebrations and festivals and, um, and, and gifts for the Olympics. But that's not giving to the poor. There was no notion that it was a positive virtue to give to the poor. No notion whatsoever. So within that radical commonality of Christianity and classical Judaism, we're going to be talking about the elements of divergence. And here's the list I have. You can take a look at that later. We're obviously not going to get through all these texts, and we'll certainly leave time for questions and comments at the end. Or if not questions and comments, we can always add another piece. Let's start by thinking for a moment for yourselves Think of the last time, or an important time, in which you were needy. You needed something. How did you feel about needing? And then somebody came and they helped you. How did you feel about somebody offering you help? For example, what if it was your mother giving you advice about who you should marry or who you should go out with? I mean, that's maybe an act of love and concern. When we're in a needy state, or at least other people see us in a needy state and they give us something, how do we react to it? And I think the core experience assumed by Paul and the core experience assumed by Maimonides are radically different, and out of that grows their different narrative. So I can think myself, a couple of days ago, I mentioned that I went to, I'm at going to this conference at the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. Uh, the architecture there is a maze. It's very hard to find anything within that institution. I was wandering around desperate to find where the room was. I also needed to find a toilet. Um, and uh, suddenly I ran into somebody who said, here, I can help you. And with a smile. And I felt very appreciative of that. Although I also felt rather dumb that I couldn't even find a room in this building, right? I'm 73 years old. I've been to this place before. I should be able to find it, right? There's a thousand people at this event. So for Paul, 
notice what the most powerful experience of the giver is, and then we'll look at the recipient. Paul, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly is the recipient. Indeed, rather rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, right? So Christ is willing to die. Righteous here means for an innocent person. Very seldom do you have a person who's willing to put their life on the line or sacrifice their life for somebody who's innocent. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. So we might think of giving our lives for a good cause, for a good person, for a good society. But what's unique about the Christian narrative of giving? But God proves his love, love is caritas or agape, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the key thing is a willingness to altruistically sacrifice your, your life for the sake of somebody who not only doesn't deserve it, but who deserves to be shamed, who ought to be punished, who should not be honored. Why should anybody, we owe nothing to the sinner. What we owe to the sinner is actually to shame him publicly for his sins. And yet Christ was willing to die for those sinners. So what does that mean about the giver? Well, if you're the person who's received this redemptive charity, this act of grace that you totally didn't deserve, you deserve the opposite, then in response, this is a typical Christian move, you feel a desire to return that goodness, that altruistic love. Of course, you can't return it to Christ. Christ doesn't need it. But you can return it to other sinners like yourselves who are also in need. And so Paul talks about what is it, what, what gives you value in his understanding. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, even if I have knowledge of, of able to speak, uh, to speak in tongues, if I have not charity, I am like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm just an empty, uh, an empty piece of self-advertisement by playing music. If I have, even if I have all that secret knowledge, both the knowledge of multiple languages of this world and the language of the angels. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, I have gnosis, I have gnosis. Though I have all faith, the faith which gives me the power to do miracles so that I can move mountains. If I have not charity, I am nothing. The only characteristic by which you should be judged is though I bestow all my goods to the poor, though I give up my body to be burned, even if I'm self-sacrificing that way, and yet have not charity, it profits me nothing. It's worthless. So in the same way as Christ was willing to give his body to have it crucified, and in the same way that one might give all one owns, which is like, meaning at the expense of your own life or certainly your own sustenance to feed the poor, even that's not enough. It's not just the act, unless the act is motivated by true love. And then later he continues, what abides are, a phrase that everyone growing up in a Christian society knows, faith, hope, and charity. These three, those are the core things that sustain us. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity means love. Now you can immediately see that there's a parallel here between giving all you have to the poor 
and giving your body to be burned for sinners. The sinner and the poor are parallel in the sense that neither of them deserves anything of your property. And, and the giver is similar because the giver gives away everything he owns. He gives of himself to the point that there's nothing left and, and he gives to the poor. Now, if we go and take ask what the Mimedian experience of being a recipient and therefore of also being a giver, the very first thing is to be needy is to be shamed. Boy, woe to one who shames the poor. Woe to such a one. Maimonides understands that poor people, are their fundamental experience is the experience of being ashamed. Now, what are they ashamed of? It's not because people who are poor in the rabbinic understanding feel that they're poor because they have sinned and therefore God is punishing them with poverty. That's a notion that almost never appears in sources, in Jewish sources whatsoever. So while Jews are always good at blaming themselves for every bad thing that happens to them, what's Tisha B'Av about if it's not that? When it comes to poverty, there is no attempt to suggest to the poor or to say to anybody that the poverty is a result of punishment for sin. And yet the person who's poor feels shame. What do they feel shame of? And why is it that as soon as you give them help, they feel even more ashamed? So here, look at this source here. Rabbi Yanai saw someone give a coin to a poor person in public. He said, after he saw this other person being generous in public, it would have been better not to give anything at all than to give it to him and embarrass him. In other words, the key element here is the experience of, of receiving is the experience of shame. The experience of being poor is the experience of shame. And when you give tzedakah, it makes things worse. Because worse than your material dependence is your sense of your psychological and social status and how you see yourself through the eyes of other people. Self-esteem is the result of how people look at you. And here, and how you look at yourself. And here, that's the problem we face when we give tzedakah. How do we deal with somebody who feels ashamed by their status and feels even more ashamed when they try to help them a little bit? So therefore, out of that notion of shame comes principles for who you give tzedakah to first and also principles about how to give the tzedakah. So let's take Maimonides, basing himself on a Talmudic source. In the case of a male orphan and a female orphan, here we have a good gendered text. Now we can get a sense of how the rabbis saw gender issues. Who come to the authorities of the community, that is the person who has the kupa, the gabaim, to get a grant of money in order to be married. There's no way you can get married unless you can afford a house, unless if in the case of a woman, unless you can offer some sort of a nedunya, some sort of a bride price of some kind. The female orphan takes precedence over the male. Why? Not because women are more valuable than men or vice versa, but rather because she feels greater shame in being unmarried than he does. Now, of course, that depends on the society. This is not a question of what it ought to be. It says given a society in which women feel more ashamed of not being married, certainly a traditional society, more ashamed than men who can get along, which was true up until very recently and only in some narrow parts of the Western world, then we have to give priority to avoid shame. 
It's not that the highest goal is to maintain people. The highest goal is to help them to avoid being shamed, especially publicly. So that obviously influences for Maimonides the notion of what the of how you should give. What's the best way to give? Or as I will try to argue, when Maimonides put together his famous eight levels of tzedakah, which is his invention, taking some Talmudic sources, especially from Masechet Ketubot uh, uh, 67 and 68, he organized them in, into his own list of orders. We all know that the highest level he gave, higher than all the rest, is to fortify a fellow Jew and give him a gift, like a grant, a scholarship, a loan, um, and or form with him a partnership, that is invest in his business, Maybe the business is simply to help him buy a bunch of brushes and then he can go off and be the, uh, the, a brush man going from house to house, but he needs the initial capital. Or find work for him until he or she is strong enough so he does not need to ask others for sustenance. That's his highest level. But actually, that's an invention of Maimonides. No rabbinic source other than Maimonides, except after Maimonides, ever called the giving of a job tzedakah. And I'll try to show you why, why I think Maimonides did this innovation. And it's related again to that central issue of concern about avoiding shame. So then Maimonides organizes the rest of them. You probably know them well. One level lower than this is one who gives tzedakah to the poor and does not know to whom he gives. And the poor person does not know from whom he receives. This, pure, this is purely a mitzvah for its own sake, such as the chamber of secrets in the holy temple. For there the righteous would give in secret and leave, and leave money, and the poor of good background would sustain themselves from it in secret. There's a special concern here for those people who once had high social status, not moral status, social status, because of their money, because maybe of their good birth, and they lost the money, and therefore they lost their standing. And those people are the ones who feel the greatest shame, even more than the people born poor. It's not a question of social justice. It's a question of how do we protect people from greater levels of shame. Right? And then we have below that is one who gives tzedakah, and the giver knows to whom he gives, but the poor person does not know from whom he takes. Now what the key element here is, anonymity is always good, because then our giving is not, uh, it's not, we don't get the, the high of the uh, one-upmanship that I can look down on somebody, that I paternalistically helped somebody. That's that certainly, uh, certainly Maimonides prefers an anonymous giving. But the most important thing is that the poor person should not be shamed. So at least he doesn't know face-to-face -face who the giver is. Therefore, giving to or through organizations rather than personal giving is clearly a value for Maimonides. Now, what I want you to understand, then he goes through the other list. The key element here is the greater anonymity for the recipient, the higher level of giving tzedakah it is, because it's avoiding that person's sense of shame, especially the shame of knowing the person who is helping you because you're one down and they're one up. But I'd like to ask, why does Maimonides put at the top of that list the giving of a gift, a loan, a partnership, finding work. Notice, the highest level has no anonymity. 
If you're investing in somebody's business, then they're going to present you their business plan. If you're giving them a loan, if you're giving, if you're hiring them to work for you, there's going to be a personal relationship. Why don't we need anonymity here? And this, and at the same time, I want to ask, why did he put this in tzedakah at all? After all, if we go back to the Talmud, it says, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, greater is the lender than the one who does tzedakah. Meaning lending like giving a loan, is not tzedakah because it's on a higher level than giving tzedakah. And yet one who puts money in a kitty as a partnership with someone in need is the greatest of all. So there's a levels of helping people, but both of those levels are above the levels of tzedakah, which is giving money to people who need, who need food. And there in tzedakah you maintain anonymity. In investment in a partnership or in a loan, you don't need to maintain anonymity. Well, why is that? So, let's see. We can see that by looking at how Maimonides explains the mitzvah to lend to the poor. And this is actually the policies that he followed in, 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 uh, in Egypt, where he ran the whole, the whole of the Tzedakah Foundation. To lend to the poor, this is a greater and well, weightier obligation than tzedakah. He too thinks it's different than tzedakah in this source. This is one of the early sources when he wrote in the uh, in his uh, in his Arabic language, Sefer HaMitzvot. I think he was 25 or something like that. The Mishneh Torah is much later. The, right? Why is loaning money better? For the suppliant who has to uncover his face to beg from people does not suffer as acute stress in doing so as the one who is normally concealed receiving a gift and whose need is for the help that will save him from uncovering his condition and from becoming a pliant, a suppliant. In other words, to become a charity case, a term used in America, that is the ultimate shame, a public charity case. And so if we can find a way to give them money that people won't know they're a charity case, even more than that, if we can give them money in such a way as they don't know that I am giving them tzedakah, then I can really save their honor. So now go back and look what Maimonides says. If a per, he takes the, if a person does not want to take tzedakah, he's too proud to accept that he has needs. But we can see that he's hungry, his family's hungry then it is a mitzvah to deceive him. To deceive him. It's very paternalistic. We have to protect this person from shame because as long as he feels shame, he's not going to take the money that he needs and his family needs. So we have a mitzvah to deceive him and to give it to him as if it were a gift or a loan. Can you imagine giving a person a job? In fact, a job you created so they could have a job, so they could have the self-respect of working and having a job and earning money and not having to get a handout. What if you told the person, you know, I made this job, I invented it, I don't need your work at all, I only invented it so you could have money. Then immediately it would stop being a tzedakah, a tzedakah that protects him from shame. It would be the most shameful thing at all, right? How do we show people that we need them, that they have something positive to contribute without letting them know that our real motivation is just to find some, make, uh, some situation in which they can do work so that they will feel, right? I have to 
I have to cheat with them. And that's a key principle that Maimonides picks up from the Talmud. Well, we won't look at the, the source for that right now. But the key point is Maimonides adds the giving of a loan as a form of tzedakah because the motive of the giver is, it's not that he expects to make money out of this investment. It's not that he expects to get the loan back. He's probably written it off in his own head. I'll never get this loan back. But he, this is his way of helping somebody and hiding from the person that, he, that he's being helped rather than he's just a normal relationship, a business loan, a grant, or, of course, uh, giving a job. Right. Now, behind all of this is a second key principle, again, radically different between Paul and Maimonides. And that has to do with our relationship to pride. Because the reason that the poor person doesn't, in, in the tzedakah model, doesn't want to accept tzedakah is because he's proud. I am too proud to have to take help from anyone. I'm sure you know people like that. Probably you're a little bit like that in some areas. I am when it comes to asking for directions. The, invest, invest, the, in, the invention of ways was a tzedakah project that allowed me that I wouldn't have to ask for advice. Now, I still have to ask my children how to make ways work because I'm not very good with this stuff, right? And it's sometimes it's not so easy to ask help from my children. But the whole notion is I want to be self-sufficient. I want to take care of myself. I want to be responsible for myself. That's the source of pride. As soon as I know that I need somebody else, there's a sense of shame there. Now, maybe there shouldn't be. In fact, ideally, I would say we all know that we're always dependent and we're always interdependent. Sometimes I can help, sometimes you can help. That mutuality of you give and then you get from either from the same person or from a different person, that's a normal human relationship. That's what God said when God created the woman along with the man. It's not good for human beings to be alone. Their interdependence is a positive value. And my teacher David Hartman said that's the basis of covenantal Judaism. God wanted a partner. It was not good for God to be alone. God wanted a partner in trying to make the world a better place. But in Christianity, there is, there is, there's a, the attitude toward pride is so negative that there is no expression of a concern for protecting the pride of the recipient when you give charity. Because after all, charity begins with being a sinner. And if you're a sinner, then you don't deserve anything. And you certainly have nothing to be proud of. The opposite, by confessing your sin, by confessing your dependence, if you've ever read the, the principles of the 12-step system for Alcoholics Anonymous, you can see how deeply Paulinian it is. You admit that you don't have the power to save yourself. You admit that you need God to come and to save you, and you ask for that help. You've lost control of your impulses, and it could be that the Christian understanding of the needy person as, an, as a person who cannot control his impulses, that's Paul's understanding, is in fact a very appropriate paradigm for people who are, who are alcoholics. I certainly don't know enough to be able to say that. It's certainly a reasonable possibility. But the key element is that for Christians, pride is so negative that we certainly don't want to encourage or maintain the pride of the poor. So notice, Paul, he's writing to his Christian, 
group of Christians in Corinth that he helped to convert to Christianity. And he's writing him a letter and saying, some of you have become proud. What are you proud of? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have is a gift, a gift from God, a gift from me, I who was the missionary who saved you. If you did receive it, why do you brag as though you did not? Any pride in your own accomplishment is, in fact, a deadly sin. And therefore, later in Christianity, St. Gregory, for example, says pride is the primary sin of all of the seven deadly sins. It's the original sin in the garden and the origin of all other sins. When Adam took from the fruit, he was taking the fruit because the snake had told Eve that she would become like God. So that's the pride that I can be equal to God and therefore everything has to be done to avoid pride. I'll give you an example of how important that is within Christianity, within the Lutheran tradition, which is a tradition based on a reinterpretation of Paul. And this is a joke I heard from a friend of mine, a Lutheran minister that I studied with. And it's a typical joke. There's always a rabbi, a priest, in this case, a Protestant minister. In all the stories that I've already heard and told, it's always the rabbi who's number three, and he's the one who's somehow the smartest one in the story or the most interesting one. In this story, the Lutheran minister is the third one mentioned. A, a joke once told me by a Lutheran minister may illuminate the special sensibility of Lutherans to self-promoting charity. This characteristic joke begins with three clergymen who met in hell and began to ask each other, for what sin were you condemned? The Catholic priest admitted to fornication with an altar boy, the rabbi to eating pork on Yom Kippur. But what did the Lutheran minister do wrong, they asked? He answered, hanging his head in shame, I did a good deed, and I was proud of it. In other words, this Luth for the Lutherans, any form of justification by works as opposed to justification by faith is a source of shame. There is nothing you can do to make to merit something to be proud of. Everything you receive is a gift given to somebody who's unworthy of that gift. Now, how does that affect tzedakah directly? One of the things that New Testament and Paul are aware of is that pride is a characteristic dysfunctional byproduct of giving charity in public. So Paul writes, charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. You can't give, you can't give charity and ask who gave more money. Charity vaunts or boasts not of itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly and seeks not its own. In other words, charity has to be something that has nothing to do with pride, nothing to do with relative higher status because I gave charity and somebody else didn't. Um, so there's a famous Anglican motto. It says, who builds a church to God and not to fame will never mark the marble with his name. Right? Because if you're giving in order to become famous, to have your name put on the wall, just look around some of the institutions that you work in, like the Hartman Institute. I have names on every wall, on every building, on even on the archways. Everything is donated with a name associated with it. That, for the Christians, cannot be charity because it's self. It's about self. Charity must be pure without self-interest, without reciprocity, without pride. And so Jesus in Matthew says, 
be careful not to do your acts of righteousness, that's a translation of tzedakah, before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full in the earth. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, you get a reward in the world to come only if you acted in such a way as there was no self-interest in this world. Now, they're speaking specifically against the Greek tradition, which was that everybody who gave, usually giving not to the poor, but to institutions, they had their name plastered on it. That was one of the great motivations of the Greeks to make donations to the public sphere was so that their name would be remembered for generations. Now, it also this... This concern to avoid pride and to avoid self-interest has a direct influence on who you give your help to. So notice, Jesus, when you give a dinner or a banquet, think about this the next time you invite somebody over for Shabbat, do not invite your friends or brothers or kinsmen or rich neighbors. Why not? Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. If you do anything generous for somebody and there's a possibility of your being repaid, then what you're doing, it's not an act of love. It's an act of calculation, self-interest. It's about an ego fulfillment or self-interest. When you give a feast, who do you invite? The maimed, the lame, the blind. Not because they suffer the most, not because they're the most shamed, not because they're forgotten, but rather... You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, the key motive here with pride is to avoid pride in the giver. Any form of self-interest immediately removes that. So here's another example of a Lutheran hospital in Columbus, Ohio. I learned this from, um, uh, from a friend of mine, Holly Schottenstein, who was very active in the Federation there. And she said that once she decided, since the Federation was known as one of the best fundraisers in the city, probably in the whole United States at that time, she decided to help her friends who were Lutherans who'd organized in order to raise money for a new wing to the hospital, the Lutheran hospital. And so she get, sat and gave them advice. They said, if you, she says, first of all, it's wonderful you're building a new wing because then you can put people's names up in the entryway on different bricks. And the more they give, the bigger their name will appear on the wall. It definitely works for us. And they said, we can't put people's names on the wall. That's not asking for charity. That would viscerate and eviscerate the charity. It wouldn't be an act of giving at all. So then she said, well, how about this? Go to the people the way we always do. If you're a lawyer, go to other lawyers. Tell the lawyer how much money you gave to the Lutheran hospital and then encourage them to match that if that's their abilities. And they said, we can't say that. We can't say how much we gave. That would be shaming them. And worse, it would be setting for them a standard of what they have to give. Their giving has to be cheerful giving. It has to be voluntary giving. If there's any element of a tax or social pressure, it stops being a, self act, a selfless act of love. 
I hope they got their hospital built, but they didn't get it by following any of the advice about Sadaka that the Jewish Federation of Columbus, Ohio could offer. In fact, the key element, and here it's expressed much later during the Reformation, is you don't have to, you don't have to feel bad about getting charity. No Christian, even though he has fallen into poverty, and regardless of the high social standing which he once enjoyed, should be ashamed of the cross of Christ and the salutary remedy administered by the Lord through need. If you are poor, don't be ashamed you're poor. God made you poor because that will bring, that'll be good for you. That will help save you from your sins. It is even less proper for Christians to find it distasteful to accept alleviation of their need through the ministry of the church. In other words, when the church offers you charity, it's as if God is offering you charity, and you shouldn't in any way worry about your pride, because in fact, being humble as a sinner is something good. There's no concern, again, about protecting the pride. Now, if you look at rabbinic texts, including especially Maimonides, they equally emphasize the importance of humility. They equally oppose pride, but they don't let that get in the way of giving tzedakah. So here I gave a whole series of texts. You can look at them later. Maimonides talks about how arrogance is so bad that we have to go to the other extreme, the radical extreme of humility, that there's no room for pride of any sort as an ethical ideal for Maimonides. That's against Aristotle. And then he brings a story probably coming from a Sufi tale in which he says about the day I sailed aboard, uh, they asked a, a pietist, a chassid, what was the happiest day of your life? And he said, the day I sailed aboard a ship and I was on the least of, of the places on the boat, that is, I was in the steerage area among the baggage, while there were on the boat merchants and men of wealth. I was lying in my place, and one of these men on the boat got up to urinate, and I was so very low in self-esteem in his eyes, in esteem in his eyes, that he exposed his nakedness and pissed on me. I was astonished at the strength of his brazenness in his soul. But I swear by God's life, said the Chassid, that my soul was not pained at his behavior at all. My strength was not aroused. I didn't feel vengeful or angry. I was so greatly happy that I reached the point that being degraded did not hurt. In other words, Maimonides, and not only Maimonides, think that the highest form of humility is not to worry about how you looked at socially and the ability to overcome your concern for how people look at you is in fact a liberation. And therefore, to be degraded socially is nothing bad whatsoever. And yet, says Maimonides, when we come to the poor people who are feeling dishonored because they are part of a social system and they can't rise above that social system and they feel it's shame and they're put down and being pissed at, pissed on, is something that deeply affects their sense of, their sense of, their sense of pride and self-respect. Then Maimonides said, one is commanded to give a person according to what he lacks. I'm skipping to the section, next paragraph. Even if it was the custom of a poor person who was once rich to ride on a horse with a servant running in front of him, and this is a person who fell from his station, doesn't have any money anymore, the community must buy him a horse to ride upon and a servant to run in front of him, as it says, sufficient for whatever he needs. Now, in what sense does he need the horse? Why does he have to be announced? Why does he have to go run in a limousine? 
right? He needs it because he's ashamed in public that people will remember his previous station and they'll make fun of him and they'll say, aha, he deserved it. Who knows what else? You are commanded to fill whatever he lacks. You're not commanded to make him wealthy. So the tzedakah here is not bringing the person up in wealth. He's going to continue to live in very deep poverty. But whenever he steps out of the door, people who don't know that he lost his money are going to be able to think that he still has that high status. So who are you fooling? It's clear to the poor man that he's lost his status. The whole point is to save that poor man who doesn't deserve to be treated this way. And in fact, the whole notion of social honor, I think, is deeply... Uh, deeply suspect in the ideas of, uh, in the idea in the eyes of Maimonides. Nevertheless, we have a mitzvah to protect that identity. I'm going to stop at this point. Lots of other texts that you can look at. Uh, does anybody have a specific comment or a question? Otherwise, I'm happy to go on with another example. Okay, so let me give you a couple more examples just coming out of, but I'll just do it orally rather than with text by this list that I made. Okay, so we talked at this point only about two, el two elements or maybe th uh, two elements. The two elements having to do with are we most concerned about uh, the joy of receiving a gift out of charity or are, or is a great concern the concern about not causing shame? How is that related to our attitude toward pride? And it's also related to the question of pure motives. Because for the Christians, any form of giving which is motivated by any kind of honor that you're going to get as a giver is not charity at all and has no value. It's a sin. But the rabbi said, while we don't want people to give money to have their name on it, if they do give to have their name on it, it counts. Because the act of helping the poor is more important than the question of the purity of motives. And so the rabbis do have the higher ideal of the anonymity of the giver. However, when it comes down to it, the main thing is to help people. Its practical results are more important than pure motives. So when you give tzedakah, who are we thinking about? The recipient or the giver? Mainly we're thinking about the recipient. So the next major difference is that for Christianity, the, the notion of taking care of yourself, self-love, is, is exactly what we have to get rid of. Part of the purpose of charity, probably the most important part of charity, is not, again, helping the poor. The most important part is purifying yourself from your self-centeredness, from self-love. And yet, when you look at the rabbinic order of, of who, gives, who gets first and self-preservation, Sa'adya Gaon says clearly, the first recipient of tzedakah should be you yourself. And you shouldn't give more than 20% of your money in any one year to tzedakah because you never know what's going to happen to you. Or as Maimonides says, if by giving tzedakah to somebody else I were to become poor, that's forbidden. It's forbidden because pikuach nefesh, taking care of yourself, maintaining yourself as not being poor, is such an important, powerful, positive value. The opposite of Christianity altogether, where the whole point is you should give everything. But it also determines who you give to, as we saw. The priorities of giving. For Maimonides, you give to your brother and you give to your neighbor. You give to anybody who helped you, you should help them back. They get priority. For Paul, 
the get the recipient ought to be the person who's least likely to give anything back to you not your relative not your neighbor the person who lives far away mother teresa going from albania off to india to do her good works not to fellow albanians in any sense right the farther away the less chance of getting anything back from people that's your priorities and the key element for christianity for paul the only giver who's an ideal is the cheerful giver. Cheerful for him means it's got to be voluntary. By the way, that's true even for the Mormons. I went and talked to Mormon theologians. I asked them, it's true you have a tithe. Does that mean that people are forced to give a tithe? He said, absolutely not. Besides, the tithing is to give to the church, not to the poor. We also give money to the poor, but the tithe is for the church activities. And in either case, they are not... They're not, there's social pressure, of course, but the ideal is that they have to be voluntary because of the Paulinian notion of the cheerful giver. Maimonides says, absolutely not. We can, we can, we'd like people to give voluntarily, but it's the rabbinic duty to give to the poor because the poor have a right to get these things, right? For Christianity, you could never say that the person who gets charity has a right to that charity. The notion of social welfare rights, that every human being has a right to be supported and therefore everybody has the duty to support them, that's a rabbinic notion. That's the rabbinic notion of social welfare that goes back to the time of the Talmud and is clearly expressed in Maimonides. Now it's related to two other pieces. One is, do we think that the poor person can pull himself out of poverty? Right? When the Maimonides gives a loan and a job, there is the possibility it will lead to rehabilitation. But that assumes that people have control over themselves. But the essence of the original sin is that Adam and all of us ever after, we lost our ability to control our instincts. We may will the good, but we end up doing the evil. An original sin is that loss of rationality, the loss of control over our desires, our eros in general, our id in general. It's also the loss of the free will to do good. It's only if God gives us the gift of grace that we can have faith in God. Everything is a gift. For Maimonides, as you well know, Maimonides is one of the great men who says there's free will. There's no ast astrological determinism of any kind. Anyone can be as much of a tzaddik as Moshe Rabbeinu, no less. We can all be none of this Hasidic business that you should be like Zushya rather than Moshe. No, everybody should be like Moshe Rabbeinu, says Maimonides. And that notion of free will, I think, leads to his notion of tzedakah. <clears throat> In other words, why is it important for us to be able to put money into somebody's partnership and give them the, you know, the, uh, the capital they need to start their business? We're saying, I believe that you have the ability to pull yourself out of poverty if we give you help. That means, notice what that means, for Maimonides, the highest form of tzedakah should be given to the, not to the weakest poor people, but to the strongest poor people. The weakest people are the ones, of course, cannot pull themselves out of poverty, and all you can do is provide them with food and medical care, but you don't expect them ever to be able to, be, to, to emerge out of poverty. The people you give a free loan to are the people who have lots of skills, who with a little bit of capital and people showing faith in them, 
because they can't get credit from the bank, so they need to get it from a free loan society. Those are the people that you have to give priority to because you can pull them out of shame and you can make them rehabilitated citizens and then they can help other people. And Maimonides gives a priority then to the strongest poor who have the best chance of emerging out of that poverty with the power of free will. And in general, and in general, for Maimonides, as opposed to Christianity, blessed are the poor is not something any Jew would say. The blessings of wealth. We found in the documents in the Geniza, there was a whole list of people who were poor, who were getting tzedakah. Maimonides was in charge of the whole tzedakah program. And they added to that whole list of poor people, may God make them rich soon. Because getting rich is good. But for the Christians, poverty is actually something that's good because it protects us from self-sufficiency, from pride, from social pride. Because as, as, uh, as Jesus says, it's easier for a, it's as easy for a rich man to get into heaven as for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Maimonides would say the opposite. That when people have wealth, when they have health, when they have peace, when they have security, then people will have time to devote to learning and to redeeming themselves through study, through improvement of their moral character, and ultimately earn, earn a place in the world to come. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, you're more than welcome to take a look at these sources. I hope you'll find something of interest in them. Sorry that I only have them in English and I wasn't able to put together all these sources in Hebrew. That would have taken a really long time. But I, I must thank you because if I weren't teaching this class, I wouldn't have spent the last week working very hard on these sources and coming to understand them at a much deeper level than I would otherwise. Okay, so Shana Tovah to you when we get to that and uh, continue to work for social justice and to find narratives that can generate in people a kind of giving which is aimed at social justice, in my judgment, not aimed at charity. Thanks very much. Shalom. Thank you so much. Thank you.